My name is Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. This podcast will be about my story and my words, talking about my own personal experiences and self-healing. I do not claim to be a therapist, counselor, or licensed psychologist. Hello, my name is Amanda Bedard, and I'm the co-host, producer, and editor of Invisible Tears. I'm a Reiki master, certified professional life coach, spiritual coach, wellness coach, and a counseling practitioner. Some of the content you will hear in this podcast may be disturbing to some. Viewer discretion is advised, but it is our hope by putting this information out there that we may help others to heal. We will always be a platform for truth and healing. This is Invisible Tears. Welcome to Invisible Tears, guys. Amanda here. So on this episode, Jane, Drew, and myself are going to be covering the suspects that are commonly linked to the Connecticut River Valley cases. We wanted to make sure and get this information out there because these cases are not solved, and some people think that they are because of the information that is out there. Jane has some great information on why the number one suspect is tied and why he should be discounted. Of course, as we keep on digging in and researching and getting information from all of you, we'll be doing future suspect episodes, but we felt it was really important to get this information out to all of you. So in our research, we have found a total of four suspects that can really be spoken about um, and or discounted, and that's what we want to talk about. Uh, When you look at everything online, uh, books, and hearing people talk, there's kind of four names that are really tied to the case. Is Michael Nicolau, Delbert Hallman, Gary Westover, and a Kellyville resident who is known as Richard Bardot. Now, that's not his real name, but it's a pseudonym that um, has been used by people that are talking about this case. So first up, I think the most important one is Michael Nicolau. I want to talk about how Michael Nicolau came to light. I was contacted by a private investigator in 2006 and she was investigating the 1988 missing person case of Michelle Ashley Nicolau, which was Michael Nicolau's wife. While investigating this missing person case, the private investigator stumbled across the Connecticut River Valley murders. She expressed to me she believed Michelle's husband, Michael Nicolau, was the Connecticut River Valley killer. It's not the first time that I've been approached by someone saying, I know who did this to you. I was both open-minded, but yet apprehensive. The private investigator eventually sent me a picture of Michael Nicolau. After studying the picture for a while, I felt no connection at all. I told the private investigator I did not think it was him. I then advised her to contact the detective unit in New Hampshire with her information, which she had lots, and the private investigator told me she had done that and felt they were not taking her information seriously and that they were not responding to her as urgently as she would have liked. This, of course, concerned me. Then, in 2006, she had contacted me that she would be visiting family that month in Vermont 
and felt we needed to do a news conference in Manchester, New Hampshire. I was reluctant to do this news conference. I have always tried to keep my face identity hidden. The private investigator told me I needed to do this so that people would take this seriously. With reservation, I agreed to do the news conference. Then, between 2006 and 2007, the private investigator set up several other interviews with several local papers. The Keene Sentinel, Sun Journal, Union Leader, all of New Hampshire, the Brattleboro Reformer in Vermont, and the Tampa Bay News in Florida. I very quickly realized the media addiction this private investigator had. In 2009, I had several phone conversations with Michael Nicolau's son, Nick. Nick had expressed to me his life was a mess. He was homeless, a drug addict, unable to hold a job, and he was dealing with the loss of his best friend from a car accident, and still dealing with his father's murder-suicide. In 2005, his father killed his wife Eileen at the time, and his stepdaughter Taryn, and then killed himself. The private investigator felt that appearing on Dr. Phil's show would be a great idea. Maybe they would be able to help Nick and the private investigator thought, what a great show topic. Killer's son <laughs> meets victim, quote unquote. I regret ever being a guest on the Dr. Phil show. In 2010, the Herald Tribune in Florida wrote an article titled, Killer's son finds friend in sleuth, quote unquote. The article was about the private investigator and Nick's newly formed friendship. Again, media. In recent years, Nick had spent some time in jail, and sadly, in 2017, Nick died of a drug overdose. In 2010, I severed all relations with this private investigator. My agenda has always been to find truth and answers. I feel this private investigator had a personal agenda to benefit herself. Do I believe Michael Nicolau was a bad person? Yes, absolutely. He killed his wife and stepdaughter. And I do believe he was responsible for Michelle Ashley's disappearance. But I do not believe he is the Connecticut River Valley killer. So, do we want to eliminate Michael Nicolau? <laughs> Absolutely. Because I sure do. Um, every time I go on the internet and I look up the Connecticut River Valley murders, his face and name is there. Mm -hmm. And it's so annoying. While I had this relationship with this private investigator, she had convinced me that it was Michael Nicolau. Even though I never felt it was him, I actually felt like it wasn't my place to say he was a suspect. I, I believe that that was the authority's job to investigate him. I had someone in my ear constantly telling me that it was him. And while this private investigator was investigating Michael Nicolau, 
She never really fully investigated everything. She would find something that fit into the investigation that, that made him a suspect, and she would run with it. Usually when you do investigations like that, don't you, um, you look at everything. Right. You look at everything. Um, some things may not fit, some things fit. And when I would mention a, a few different things that didn't fit, she would get upset and real defensive and, you know, come back with, well, this fits. You know, don't forget that we have this, this bit of evidence against him for the cases. And a lot of it was hearsay or word of mouth. There was never any solid evidence connecting Michael Nicolau with the Connecticut River Valley killings. Right. There was no physical evidence. There was no witnesses. She just never really fully investigated everything. She only investigated what she wanted to investigate to make things fit and make it look like he was the Connecticut River Valley killer. It really sounds like she came to the conclusion before and then tried to add in all the pieces to make the story fit what she had already came to the determination of. And that's not the way that you should uh, conduct an investigation, even if it's a amateur investigation or a private investigation. Absolutely. I totally agree. Yeah, exactly. Yes, because his name first was brought up by looking for the disappearance of his second wife. Yes. And this PI Googled New Hampshire killings 1988 and found your case and went, okay, well, the disappearance of the second wife and your killing somewhat in the same area, even though Swansea and Holyoke are not exactly close together. Are they along the same 91 corridor? Yes. Basically. But yeah. still quite a distance. And when you're talking about Holyoke and Claremont, that's even further. You're talking, what, hour and a half? Yeah, at least. Driving distance? Yeah, at least. Yep. So it's not exactly close. And then the only other ties was his second wife's in-laws lived in the Claremont area. He didn't live in the Claremont area, but his second wife's family did. Mm -hmm. And by all accounts, they did not exactly take kindly to him. They thought he was creepy. They thought he was weird. So it's not like he was spending a lot of time around every single holiday up in that area. Mm -hmm. And by all accounts, the only time he did spend up there was in the wintertime for Christmas. However, when you look at all the dates of the killings, they all happened, for the most part, in the summer or fall. And we all know the landscape looks completely different summer to fall, Absolutely. even into winter up in this area. And... By all profilers, they believe that the killer knew the area extremely well, hunted this area. Mm -hmm. Spent a lot of time on the roads. Right. Yep. But if you only spent the time up here in the wintertime, but then would commit the murders in the summertime, how the hell would you know where to actually dump the bodies in a place that could not be seen? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, right. you would have to know back roads, and I've been to a couple of the spots where the, the bodies were found, and, and you definitely have to know the back roads and, and, and the geographics up there. Um, you know, an, another thing that, that got my attention, too, was um, he was so obsessed with Ashley, uh, with Michelle Ashley, 
his second wife. He he was very obsessed with her. Uh, she couldn't go anywhere without him. He had to, um, you know, back then they didn't have cell phones or anything like that. So it's not like he could have called her all the time. But he was constantly with her. Anytime she came up to see her family, he was there. He was with her. Um, she had threatened to leave a couple of times, and he, he did stalk her and, and you know, find her and try and talk her to come back, which he had done that a couple of times. So I guess my point is, whoever the, the Connecticut River Valley killer is, they have to spend a lot of time on the road. They have to spend a lot of time trying to find that perfect victim. And how can he spend so much time on the road and away from Michelle if he was constantly with Michelle? He was so obsessed to be with her. He was extremely possessive. And controlling. And controlling. Yep. So how does one be both at the same time yeah that doesn't make it that doesn't doesn't make any sense sense. it It doesn't and after michelle's disappearance he reportedly moved down to virginia exactly where he owned a porn shop and it was actually involved in some court cases um one of which he was in court and then a one of the connecticut valley killings happened eight days later and the pi came to the conclusion well after the court case he must have driven north 600 miles to commit the murder and then drive back to Virginia. Yeah, see that just doesn't it just doesn't add up. It's you've got to you don't just drive up here from Virginia and boom, you find a victim done and over with and then you drive back to back to Virginia. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, for those people that are, you know, business owners especially oh, Owning a business is, is like, you know, a triple full-time job, like as it is. And then if your business is involved in court cases and things like that, I, I, I don't see how those logistics would make sense. And let's not forget, he, he was raising two kids by himself. Right. You know, Michelle wasn't around. Michelle had disappeared. And he had the two kids. So I just can't see him being away for, you know, it just doesn't add up. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't add up. Yeah. Another thing, too, is he was, um, when he killed Eileen and Taryn and then killed himself, um, obviously his weapon of choice was a gun. And that was that was brought to my attention by another uh, investigative journalist that uh, you choose a weapon to kill. Um and you stick with that one weapon. Especially if it's a knife. Especially if it's a knife. Mm-hmm. You don't s- just switch over and, and use a gun. Mm-hmm. Um, if he had a gun, then I would think that would have been his weapon of choice with the Connecticut River Valley murders. Agreed. Yeah, very rarely do killers you know, switch from one weapon to another. But usually, you know, in I believe most cases, they do switch weapons it is across the gamut of strangulation shootings stabbings right it's almost they almost use it like a forensic countermeasure yep so you can't actually link between the different killings and the other thing is he owned a porn shop 
but by profiling, um, by some of the profilers we spoke with, the Connecticut River Valley killer used a knife because most likely he was impotent. And I look at it from a guy's perspective going, if you're impotent, would you be in the porn business? I would think not. I would think that would be so, so even more difficult to put yourself in that position of being impotent and then just being around guys that can get hard at an instant and how does that not kill you? And then wouldn't you take it out on men that don't have any trouble performing? Exactly. Yep. See, and I actually, I actually look at it, well, I understand that point of view. I actually look at it from the different point of view is that if, if someone is, if, if someone's committing these murders and their weapon of choice is a knife and that's due to, you know, essentially impotence, um, it might be very likely for them to actually immerse themselves into, um, into porn and into almost like a sex addict and become obsessed with that sort of environment and that sort of lifestyle. It, I can look at it from either perspective. Yeah, that's a good point. But he was a guy that also had many wives and children. Yes. And was, by all accounts, very controlling in those relationships. So mm-hmm. as far as getting sex at home, probably was not an issue. So I don't believe Nicolau was, quote unquote, impotent. Right. Yeah, I would. I I would not think that. No. Another thing too was, um, you know, they have reported several times that he was. Um, he had a lot of rage, and anger, and showed a lot of rage and anger, and uh, outburst and um, stuff like that. Now. The one that attacked me, I have described from the beginning, very calm, very, um, um, never showed any rage or very, very, uh, how do I want to put it? Yeah, he was very calm and calculated. Very poised. Yes. Yep. Very poised. Um, so if you look at that kind of a profile, he definitely doesn't match that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was no rage that day. Right. Yeah, he did stab me mm-hmm. 27 times. But the way he approached it and then the way he left was very calm. Very calm and very controlled. Yes. Which wouldn't speak to somebody who had, you know, a rage or an anger outburst problem at all. It actually, It's actually a completely opposite personality trait. So another thing that she she tried to fit in was um, he was in the service. I guess he was in Korea. And um, he suffered PTSD. And I guess he didn't have a stellar career in the service. He had, he had done some pretty bad things with it. Yeah, he, he was honorably discharged from the service. Um, he had actually gotten, he had gotten, what, two Purple Hearts? bronze star um so a couple of medals so he was decorated but he was honorably discharged after some uh him and some of his members of his platoon um were found guilty of committing acts against civilians exactly um, when he was in wartime um there's one account that somebody says that he wanted to go out into the woods with a knife 
just to hunt humans. Um, that was his goal that day was just to go hunting. Yeah, that's creepy. That's creepy, but it's also hearsay. Absolutely. Yep. So. And this PI, she also believed that he was the Parkway killer down oh, yes. in Virginia, too. She thought he was the Parkway killer, and she also thought he was another serial killer that was running up and down a highway down in Texas. And so she was trying to pin well over 100 murders on this guy, which... Um, busy man. Yeah, he was... According to her, he was a very busy man. Plus, he was also raising two children on his own. Right. So he was raising two children on his own, and he was running to the, all these states and committing all these murders. And, um, oh, and don't forget, he was married to his third wife, Eileen. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know how he did it. So all we really know for fact about Michael Nicolau, as far as crimes goes, is that he did kill his third wife, his stepdaughter, and then himself. He did. And he did that with a gun. Mm -hmm. I mean, he lived in Florida for quite a while before he killed his his third wife and, and stepdaughter. So there was, I mean, serial killers don't stop. They might move and relocate and they might go to jail or die, but they don't usually stop. And I did a lot of looking at the area um, where he was living in Florida. And I didn't really see any serial killer running around in that area stabbing women. So that kind of gave me a red flag, too, that uh, I'm... I know, doubt that it was him. Yeah, too many of the pieces don't fit. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so we're discounting Nicolau. Yeah, I would like to. Um, I think think it's unfortunate that so much attention has been with him um, being connected to these cases. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. And now back to our episode. So the second suspect is Delbert Tallman. He was convicted in 1996 on two counts of conduct with a child. Um, He had initially confessed to the rape and murder of 16-year-old Heidi Martin in Heartland, Vermont, although he later recanted and was acquitted and released of these charges. However, three years later, after Heidi Martin's body was found in Heartland, Vermont, this is when Barbara Agnew's body was found about a mile from where Heidi Martin's body was. The proximity to Heidi Martin's body and Barbara Agnew's body, I believe, is what made people kind of tie him to the case. Mm -hmm. It's an area where not a whole lot of crimes happens, and to have two crimes of this, you know, nature, although one was a rape of a teenager, the other one was a stabbing of a woman, um, don't really tie, but the fact that they were so close to one another, that's what, you know, kind of got him onto the radar of people going well, if he did this one thing, could he have done the second thing as well? Yeah, that makes sense because only being found a mile, a mile apart. Now, I I could not find anywhere that he drove. Interesting. I I could not, I I did find that he was homeless in Claremont, Mm -hmm. but I did never, I never found anywhere online that he 
drove a vehicle. Hmm. What he drove for a vehicle or anything like that. Right. Now, if you're transporting bodies like that, you need a vehicle. Um, especially um, some of the places where some of these bodies are found near four-wheel drive. Yeah. Especially in the winter. And, uh, yeah, you need a specific type of vehicle. Exactly. Extremely rural places. Yep. So that was one of my big things is being homeless and not having a vehicle. Now, I could be wrong. He could have had a vehicle, but I've never seen anything about that. Because that was one of my big things is, hmm, I wonder what he was driving. Because don't forget, I can identify the vehicle that the monster that attacked me was driving. Right. So that that's my first go-to. What was he driving when they suspected him? And I couldn't find that. Yeah, and I do believe that proximity to where the bodies are found the only thing that ties him to the case. I the fact so that too. he was only charged, or the case that he was charged with was um, sexual conduct with a child, underage girls, and sexual, sexual aspect to his crimes can kind of discount him um, because through the Connecticut River Valley killings, there's only one of the bodies that the authorities said could have been sexually assaulted at the time of death. Um, all the other ones were strictly stabbings. And leaving but they death. don't know about some of them because some of them were so decomposed. So um, right. they no. couldn't confirm sexual being sexually attacked. Right, but the one case that they do bring up that it was sexually assaulted, the body was too too decomposed to identify the cause of death. However, they said that the surround or the circumstances of how the body was found led them to believe that there was a sexual assault aspect to it. Now there's no detail as to why the authorities thought that or why mm-hmm. that would be brought up, but so that was always one thing that, in my mind, was I don't think there was any sexual assault aspect. Why they brought that, you know, why the authorities said that, I don't know. Yeah. It's a little, you know. But then they're still connected to the Connecticut River Valley cases, too. So in my mind, I think that it would make sense that it would be a pretty consistent factor that if there was a sexual component or a sexual assault component, it would either be there or it wouldn't in these cases. It wouldn't necessarily flip-flop, you know, in between in some situations be present in some situations not. So one aspect to the whole sexual assault um, being tied to the case is Linda Moore's death. She was found stabbed to death in her home. Reports are that she was sunbathing and stuff at her home prior to her being killed. So if there was a sexual aspect to these cases, isn't her as the victim kind of, they should have seen some sort of sexual assault? Linda Moore in her home, in a bathing suit, but no sexual aspect. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yep. I figure if there's a trigger for a sexual assault, it's a woman home alone in a bathing suit versus a hitchhiker on the side of the road. I don't know why that... Well, and with the you case too, to with the Linda Moore case too, I mean, they were able to actually find her body within a couple of, it was like a couple of hours. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, it was very, very quickly that they were able to find her body. So, I mean, obviously there wasn't any like decomposition or, or anything like that. So they could mm-hmm. very um, clearly tell 
all the components within her attack. And yeah, there was no mention of any sexual component with that. Yeah, and I believe, um, I mean, him as a suspect, he was, um, he was rather tall. Very lanky. Very lanky. And definitely didn't fit my description um, of my attacker. So, in my mind, I feel good about excluding him. The next suspect that we're going to talk about is Gary Westover in his deathbed confession. In October 1997, a 46-year-old Grafton, New Hampshire paraplegic man named Gary Westover, related to his uncle, retired Grafton County Sheriff's Deputy Howard Minion, that he had a confession. Westover told Minion that in 1987, three buddies picked him up for what was described as a night of partying. Allegedly, they loaded Westover in his wheelchair into their van and set out to Vermont, where they abducted, murdered, and dumped Barbara Agnew, the Connecticut River Valley killer's final victim. Westover provided the names of the three friends. Thereafter, Minion shared Westover's information with his wife, daughter, and law enforcement. However, Minion felt that authorities were not interested in his information. Westover died in March 1998, and Minion died in 2006. In August 2006, one of Westover's aunts wrote to Anne Agnew, sister of the victim, with the information originally given by Westover to Minion. And then, as we know with Barbara Agnew's death, that it was a major snowstorm. She was on her way home from a ski trip, and it stopped at a rest area um, about 10 miles from her home for some unknown reason. So the logistics with Gary Westover, in my opinion, uh, this I think that's the piece that's the most confusing to me. I don't understand how in a massive snowstorm, a couple of his buddies would come and pick him up while in a wheelchair in a van and go out partying in a massive snowstorm and then commit this type of crime. Um, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Although, you know, I don't want to sit there and say that we want to discount someone's deathbed confession. I mean, they have no other reason to relieve their conscience, I guess you can say. But I'm wondering if the circumstances to connecting it to Barbara Agnew, I'm wondering if it's a different person. That's what I was thinking. I, I, I really thought that, um, he's, I, I, I be, in, in a certain sense, I believe his death, deathbed confession. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe that, I, I don't believe, there was so many years between when he claims that he, they, that they picked this woman up and murdered her. Okay. There was so many years between the confession and the murder mm-hmm. that how does, I mean, maybe he, he's not remembering the right date or he's not remembering the right person or the location. Um, they were partying. Um, who knows how intoxicated they were or how high they were. Um, if he's confessing to a murder, then, you know, obviously we should trust that. But was it this murder? Did, right. Did he you know? actually, in his confession, and of course it's such a different series of hearsays yes. as well. Yes. Because it's like information passed to this person and then passed to this person and then passed to this person and then going to authorities. It's There's such a game of telephone happening here that I'm even wondering if 
in his confession itself if he actually named Barbara. Exactly. Or not. Um, and it was just because of a general time frame that he may have given um, that she was then connected. Yeah, so one report on the deathbed confession that I was able to find was that he was used as a rouse, or he was used as a ruse to get Barbara Agnew to pull over to help a disabled man in a snowstorm. <laughs> now, if that was the case, they would have had to have known that she was on her way home from a ski trip and would be going and she um, going on be on the highway at that time. Right. And that she would have stopped at the White River Junction I-91 northbound rest area only 10 miles from her own home. That's quite a series of coincidental happenings. Absolutely. Um, For one, amen. And I don't mean to laugh about this, but so you're out partying and you're going to take this man in a wheelchair and you're going to put him on the side of 91 in the middle of a snowstorm (laughs) (laughs) in the hopes of a vulnerable woman driving by herself is going to drive by and stop. That is just, um, it's far-fetched. Yeah, I, I, I really think that, like, between the connection between the wheelchair and the snowstorm is, is just, a, it doesn't make sense. Yep. It just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And then where they brought, where, where Barbara Agnew was found, way up on this dirt road. I mean, so rural. So rural. So, um, so back roads. I don't believe the connection was with Barbara. That's Maybe fine. somebody else, but I don't think it was um, a connection with Barbara Agnew. And Not think, on that night. And I think for a different topic is we want to look into that a little bit further. Yeah, that would be interesting, huh? If there was a body or somebody went missing around the area and time frame mm-hmm. that Westover um, apparently committed these crimes to see if there's any ties to that or something for some reason may have been overlooked right yeah we'll dig into that further in the future yeah because that would be interesting to research all right so gary westover nope not him and the other thing is um to kind of discount westover is by westover's story there was a total of three men that were involved in the abduction and killing of barbara agnew but with talking with john philippin um and other investigators that they believe that the Connecticut River Valley serial killings was done by a single perpetrator. Yes. Um, so in, by the time of Agnew's death, there had already been a number of murders committed and then some following. So why would this one have been the different one where if it was, if this truly was part of it, why would the initial killer of everybody else beforehand bring in two accomplices for this one specific murder and then not continue with the two of them going forward. Because Jane knows for a fact there was only one attacker. Yeah, in her there case. was only one attacker with me. And so. he wasn't in a wheelchair. No, he didn't have a wheelchair. The fourth and final one is really a pseudonym. All we know him by name is by Richard Bordeaux. And we got this information from Philip Ginsburg's book, um, The Shadow of Death. And speaking with residents in the Kellyville area, this name is definitely, or this person is definitely interesting. 
Now, some people completely discount him completely because of his mental capacity. Um, he's definitely was definitely on the spectrum at the time. The spectrum wasn't known. They just knew that he was odd, very odd around women, which very well could have led to, you know, it could have been Asperger's or autism, something that made it. So he was uncomfortable around women. Mm -hmm. um, and women were uncomfortable around him. Yeah, yep. exactly. And residents were told, especially um, younger girls and women, to stay away from this guy's house. Um, but as far as finding out his real name, we, we haven't been able to get there just yet. But we're continuing working. This is the one suspect that we're definitely doing more research on and trying to find out as much information as possible. Because when talking with people that know him, definitely think this is something weird about him. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that would tie him would be proximity to where some of the bodies were found up in the Kellyville area as well. Yeah. So sort of almost the yep. epicenter. But yeah, not too much other detail on him. Not much at all. But more to come. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So there was our four suspects that we know of that have been floating around the internet and the newspapers or wherever else. Um, if you, somebody out there, has a, has a suspect in mind or have any views on, on the suspects that we, we just talked about, we'd love to hear your opinions. Absolutely. We'd love to hear your opinions and hear about, you know, what you've dug up. We welcome details. But of course, first and foremost, if you have a suspect... Um, on any of our cases, any of these cases, please, please, please get a, get in touch with the cold case units, Vermont or New Hampshire. They both have websites. And um, I, I really prefer you to do that first before contacting us. Yeah, that's where that information really belongs. Absolutely. With authorities. Since, again, everything's unsolved. Yes, please. These cases are unsolved. It's been a long time, and it's been too many years for these to be unsolved. It's unacceptable to us. Yes, it is. And it would be interesting to hear from our listeners who had been following this case, whether it be the last couple of years or since the beginning of it. Do, did you think that Nicolau was the killer and therefore never proceeded any further with looking at the other suspects. Mm -hmm. If you're just on the outside looking in, it definitely looks like it's quote-unquote solved and he was the killer. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Invisible Tears. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to hear all future episodes. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We also have a website, invisible-tears.com, where you can keep current with any events that may be happening with our podcast, read more about Jane and the team, and read more about all the Connecticut River Valley unsolved cases. If you are looking for everyday items, clothes, collectibles, or a gift for that special someone, you can support us further by checking out our retail store, The Frugal Marketplace. We can be found at thefrugalmarketplace.com or search for us on eBay and Poshmark. 
We hold an online claim sale on Facebook Live every Monday night at 7 p.m. where you can find our latest items for sales or items at a deep discount. If you're local to the area, please stop in and say hi. You can find us at 919 West Swansea Road in Swansea, New Hampshire. The links for our products can be found in our show notes. If you want to learn more about my wellness practice, Guided Path Wellness, head to guidedpathwellness.org. There you can read more about me and my certifications, more about the Reiki and coaching services I offer both in person and remote, and read all about my products for sale that I make through the practice. Feel free to utilize the contact us section on the website with any questions or utilize that free 15-minute consultation booking button if you have any questions about what might work for you. Evil may exist in this world, but we will not let it win. See you next episode.